0: Welcome to the National Security Podcast. This is the podcast where we look at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific region. This podcast is brought to you in collaboration between PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Thanks for listening. Previously, we have discussed the relationship between President Trump and President Putin after their Helsinki summit, where President Trump was accused of not being stronger on Russia and their alleged interfering in America's 2016 presidential elections. The US is again now heading towards its midterm elections in November, and there has been serious concerns raised about their vulnerability to further foreign interference and also physical hacking today we'll be talking to Tim Mora and he is the co-director of the cyber policy initiative and a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace we'll be discussing with Tim his recent work where he looks at what has been learned from the 2016 experience how countries in Europe have strengthened and acted to protect their democratic processes and how far the US has gone in protecting the integrity of the 2018 midterm elections but before we do that I just want to say thanks to everyone who's been getting in touch online, telling us uh, what their their thoughts are of the podcasts and what they'd like to hear. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe if you're listening to us on your favourite podcast platform and also give us a rating. Now, if you want to get in touch with us to give us some feedback, you can do so on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. You can do it on Facebook at the Asia Pacific Policy Society. And you can also do it on email using podcast at policyforum.com. Net. Now, let's speak, Tim. G'day, Tim. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, you've recently co-authored a paper called "Russian Election Interference: Europe's Counter to Fake News and Cyber Attacks." First off, what is the context that um, that made you interested in this subject matter?
1: So, we wrote this report in the latter half of 2017 when five European countries um, of significant size and population were having their own elections. This was Germany, France, the UK, the Netherlands, and Sweden. And in light of the events in the United States that occurred in 2016 and the interference in the US presidential election at the time, we were interested to look into how were European governments preparing against potential interference from Russia. So we looked at these five case studies that we had selected and compared what the governments were doing to protect their elections.
0: Right. And did you find much difference between what each country was doing in terms of how serious they took it and how effective their response was? There was variation, but also common findings. Um, if we look
1: at the election in the UK, in the United Kingdom, you actually had snap elections that were had to be pulled off within the matter of months. So the focus of the government here was actually much more on hardening the election infrastructure rather than focusing as much on influence operations. The rationale being that um, any adversary had as little time as the actual people in the UK to prepare for the election, and it would made it much harder to pull off a concerted influence operation.
0: Did you find that uh, the Brexit experience um, had influenced the UK election and how they saw that election? I
1: think it had definitely heightened awareness. Um, At that point, there was still a significant uncertainty whether foreign actors had played a role in Brexit or not, but um, without being absolutely certain, I think London was very uh, wanted to make sure that they would take measures to prevent uh, any potential interference in this uh, election.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did you find the you Other than the, the time frame that they had and what their focus was, how did you find the difference between, say, the UK, Germany, France, and Sweden? Were other countries less prepared, or did they do a better job? So, Sweden, which actually had
1: elections in 2018, um, had much more time to prepare and a much more comprehensive strategy, I think, also based on the previous experience with regard to Russia that dates back decades. In Germany and in France, you also had different outcomes. In France, you actually had Macron's campaign being hacked uh, only um, a day or two before the actual election took place.
0: When you say hacked, can you go through exactly what happened for us? So
1: his uh, campaign was hacked, and then um, material was stolen from the campaign, and the interesting aspect of that episode was actually that the Macron campaign said issued a statement very quickly saying, well, yes, we were hacked and data has been stolen, but we've also deliberately planted fake uh, data in our systems, so the attacker doesn't actually quite know what is authentic and what is not authentic, and whatever may be released uh, in the next day or so we will not know whether it's actually uh, accurate or not.
0: So do you think that that also gave them some kind of level of deniability if something embarrassing did come out that they could accuse them of planting it?
1: Yes, it was incredibly clever. Um, we actually don't know whether the, the, it was actually true that fake data was also residing on the systems or whether it was just a very, very smart um, communications strategy that they developed prior to it. Um, but it essentially took the winds out of the sails uh, from whomever wanted to use that information leading up to the election. Um, so it it was a fascinating story, and in France, given the way this election system works, you had Macron, who was in the runoff with um, Le Pen, and Le Pen has uh, repeatedly expressed positions sympathetic to Russia and the Kremlin. So there was a much uh, it was much higher stakes for how that election could turn out. Whereas in Germany, it was a much more complex um, environment of different candidates and parties.
0: So there's been a constant claim that not only did Russia have an interest in not seeing Hillary Clinton become elected because of the previous relationship between Putin and Clinton and all these other claims, uh, and that they felt that they'd have an easy relationship with Trump, but also that their overall goal is to create distrust and doubt uh, within US society, divides in U.S. society, and so they have less faith in their system and in democracy and so on. Do you see a similar goal, say, happening in France and Germany and so on, or is are these actors more interested in creating an actual outcome rather than just creating doubt and chaos? That's a
1: really good question, and I don't think we have a definite answer to that. We do know, based on the joint assessment of the U.S. intelligence community, that Putin personally ordered the interference in the US elections. And clearly that was motivated by his enemies with regard to uh, Secretary Clinton. The undermining of liberal democracy and the US system um, would also make sense from a geopolitical perspective. But even some of the leading Russian scholars can't agree whether Russia truly has a global ambition in trying to have these disruptive effects, or whether it's focusing much more on their immediate vicinity and neighboring countries. Uh, at Carnegie, we have um, our the head of the Carnegie Moscow Center, Dmitry Trenin, uh, who represents one view, and then we have Andrew Weiss, who heads our Russia program in Washington, who has the opposite view, and both are considered some of the leading experts on Russia, so the fact that you even have them not agreeing on it tells you something that we still have a certain degree of unclarity, uncertainty around what the ultimate objectives were. Looking based on the study and looking at the different European countries, it was interesting to see that, for example, in Germany, you didn't have any significant interference and that in France, you did have uh, the hack of the Macron campaign and then also the Netherlands. There were certain type of activities, which leads us to believe that the Kremlin has been very deliberate in deciding what countries it will interfere in and how it evaluates certain relationships over all this.
0: Now we have the lead up to the November midterm elections in the US and we've just been talking about five European countries that were able to learn from the US experience in hardening their election and also their infrastructure based on what they learnt in 2016 in the US. How well is the US now hardening its own processes and infrastructure against foreign interference in the coming elections?
1: I would say that in the U.S., we were off to a slow start, but that we've been picking up pace, specifically in the last few weeks and months, um, with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security having spearheading a lot of the efforts, from the Secretary of Homeland Security, Nielsen, having issued public warning against any interference in the midterm elections, to DHS working with local and state officials who are in charge of the election infrastructure at the local and state level to share information with them and to provide the resources in case they would want to take federal help to improve the election uh, infrastructure systems. so a lot of work has gone into it. Um, There are still some states that have some uh, concerns about relying on the federal government to work with them, Um, but hopefully they will also come around because uh, we've seen just in the last few days that Microsoft uh, noticed fake websites that have been created by a known Russian advanced persistent threat and have taken them down. They were specifically targeting Republican think tanks. Uh, Facebook has just announced also that um, they've Detected some uh, activity that's of concern. So it seems that in spite of all of the attention that's been spent on this issue since 2016, there are still actors out there who think um, this is something that they should continue to do.
0: Do you think that they, that is... Partly because there's there may be an opportunity to uh, you know pursue their own interests, but also that maybe there's mixed messages coming from the U.S. government, including the White House, and actual deterrence messages. The reason why I ask is because obviously there was the Helsinki summit uh, where. President Trump didn't seem to be as strong in condemning or even agreeing that uh, Russia was responsible for interfering in the 2016 elections. Do you think that there would have been more reluctance in uh, looking to interfere in the coming elections if the U.S. president had given a stronger deterrence signal than he has? Whether or not the president...
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. issues a very strong statement and warning might not necessarily impact whether another actor is still going to do it because it's so cheap to do these operations and because of the impact that they've had in the last two years. Uh, So they're easy to pull off and they might still achieve the objective of sawing mistrust and undermining the system. Nevertheless, It's absolutely critical that the president issues such a statement because he and the White House need to play that integrating function of creating a comprehensive strategy to counter any such activity when it does occur. Right now, we're in a situation where you have different departments developing their strategies to counter this from the Department of Homeland Security to the Department of Justice uh, to also the military and the intelligence community that's clearly uh, preparing to take action if they notice certain types of behavior. Um, But these various pieces are only much more powerful if they're actually integrated through a coherent strategy and that needs to go through the White House. And for that to occur, you need the person at the top, the president, to make clear that this is a priority for him and to also send a clear external message that this will not be tolerated and accepted and to send a clear internal message that this is something that the US government needs to take seriously and to organize behind. And those issues, that hasn't taken place uh, to the level that I think it should have taken place.
0: Now, we've been talking essentially about um, interference in elections, but this obviously is not the only kind of cyber and uh, influence Operations that countries and states carry out. And there is often a blurring between a state actor and a non-state actor and also the issue of attribution in cyberspace, which is clearly very difficult. You've also done some recent work looking at the way some of the different states, uh, let's say non-Western states, The way that they work and the differences let's say uh china russia and iran and how they may differ from the way us acts in cyberspace can you maybe talk a bit about that
1: yeah so in the last few years we've gotten a much better idea and picture of how some of these operations take place and how different states from russia to china to iran use hackers to project power we know this partly because um, there are now indictments that have been unsealed, providing details at a level that are supposed to stand,
0: um, to, to stand in court. Now, it's just to quick, quickly ask you a question, sorry to interrupt on that, it seems quite strange that they would unseal an indictment. The, therefore, these people know that they are on a list and if they do go to a country where Interpol operates and they have extradition treaties with the US, they will get arrested. So therefore, they will not go to these countries. So why would you unseal an indictment like that?
1: Great question. And to your earlier point about how attribution is difficult, a couple of years ago, a lot of people said attribution is actually impossible and that you can't trace the source of a cyber attack. What these indictments show that it is possible to find out who is behind a cyber incident and that if you combine the resources of the state, be it Human spies, human intelligence, to signals intelligence, um, and you have enough time and resources, you're actually able to find out who's behind it, to identify them with a name, sometimes photos, and can hold those responsible that are actually behind it. Now, in terms of holding these actors responsible, to your point about, well, if you unseal them, aren't you letting them know that they're on the list? That's true. Uh, For some of these actors, I think there's a very low probability in any circumstance that. US law enforcement agencies would arrest them. So the trade-off was, should we keep this unsealed in the hope of some at some point arresting them? Or should we make them public to show to these countries that they can no longer hide behind this argument that attribution is not possible and that you first need to show them the proof that they have been somehow involved or that nationals of their countries are involved? Now there is proof. Now you have indictments that mention the people by name, have the photos, the age, sometimes the addresses. And you can go back to the countries and say, even if you were not involved, you claim that you are sovereign on your territory they've committed a violation of our laws, and therefore we expect you to arrest them and if there's an extradition treaty, to extradite them to the United States. So it changes the equation, it changes the logic and narrative in the international discussions.
0: Right, and these people that have been indicted, uh, they're all state actors. They're all, as far as I'm aware, they're all connected to, say, the PLA or an organization like that. Were any of these non-state actors as well, or were they all state actors?
1: Yeah, so actually some of the high-profile cyber incidents in recent years were conducted not by state actors or not state actors alone, but leveraging non-state hackers. So the largest data breach in history so far, uh, the Yahoo data breach, was carried out by four individuals two Russian intelligence officers who actually recruited one of the FBI's most wanted cyber criminals and a 22-year-old Canadian at the time who assisted and supported this op- operation that led to a $300 million uh, economic damage uh, when Yahoo was taken over by Verizon. So this is one example where you had two Russian intelligence officers actually working with not known non-state hackers. Another example is the Iranian operation and campaign launching a massive DDoS attack against U.S. financial institutions from 2011 to 2013. DDoS attacks being kind of a distribute, distributed denial of service attacks. Um, if you think of the old phone prank where somebody would call your phone line so often that you can't actually use it, that's the the old school way and version of a DDoS attack in the digital age. They launched these DDoS attacks against banks at a scale that the some of the largest banks in the world had to go to the US government and ask them for assistance. And in this case, it was three individuals uh, with ties to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps who started working with four Iranians in their mid-20s. And once they joined this operation, the mass the DDoS attack became much more massive in scale and, and scope. And as far as we can tell, these four mid-20 year olds were probably students working at one of the or several of the universities in, in, in Iran who then supported this operation.
0: Right, and so the DDoS attacks and and the other attacks that, that aren't necessarily linked to a uh, an election, as we're talking about previously, uh, why would Iran want to launch these kind of attacks against American banks? Is that a geopolitical issue, or is there a financial issue there? It may be one or the other, it may be both.
1: Um, so, if you use a proxy like that, one you 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 gain political. Plausible deniability because you can you have a an additional degree of separation between the state and those who carry out the operation so the state can claim that they were actually not involved um, so there's plausible deniability as one potential incentive the other incentive might be that this occurred back in 2011 so in the early days when we had the discussions around cyber war. So at that time, maybe the Iranian state didn't have their own capabilities yet and actually needed these four mid-20-year-olds who uh, were more familiar with how to use the internet and how to launch DDoS attacks to actually augment their own capabilities, that might be another reason. Um, The third one might just be that there was an alignment of political interests, that these students uh, had some tie to the other three Iranians, and they realized that they had a common objective and then joined forces.
0: Mm. So we've been talking about Russia and Iran here. Uh, Let's move over to Asia a little bit. Do you see similar behaviors and activities coming out of, say, China and North Korea to other well-known cyber
1: so the militia cyber activity that uh, we see coming out of China seems to primarily focus on the theft of data and the theft of trade secrets. So there's more of an economic dimension tied to it. Um, there's also the national security intelligence collection that pretty much every country does. Um, there are some what makes China different is the tight connection between the government and state-owned enterprises that don't exist in Western nations anymore um, after the privatization of the last... Uh, three to four decades. There are also some reports suggesting that some of the universities and some of the students take a more active role in supporting some of the offensive cyber operations. A lot of that remains murky and more rumor than information that's publicly available. Um, and then you also have different parts of the Chinese state that conduct operations from the PLA, different departments of the PLA, and then you have different parts of the Chinese state that focus much more on uh, control of information and decision and and keeping an eye on those who might be a potential threat to regime stability. So China shows some of the same characteristics, but at the same time, if we look at the last 20 years, Beijing has shown a growing trend to try to centralize and to increase its control over the hackers on the Chinese territory, which makes sense from both perspectives in terms of one regime, uh, Beijing is very concerned about regime stability. Therefore, it wants to make sure that there aren't potential hackers that could pose a risk to the Great Firewall and and the regime itself. So that's an incentive to have strong control. Another one is when it comes to its external interactions, China is clearly very strategic and very deliberate in how it engages with other countries. So there's also an interest to make sure that they control the other hackers so that there couldn't be potential escalation or accidents, uh, because that's clearly not, I think, Beijing's long-term vision for its role in the world.
0: Tim, thanks very much for coming and talking to us today. And we look forward to next time you come to Canberra, getting the opportunity again. Thanks very much. I look forward to being back. Thank you very much. And thanks very much for Tim for coming in and talking to us at the National Security Podcast. Don't forget to get in touch with us if you have any points, concerns or questions that you'd like to raise about foreign interference or cyber interference. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or on Facebook at the Asia Pacific Policy Society or via email using podcast.com. At policyforum.net. We'd love to hear from you and we look forward to speaking to you again in two weeks with the next National Security Podcast.